Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. This podcast is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and analytics director at Internews Ukraine. And I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Maxim Panchenko, journalist and analyst at ukraineworld.org. Hello, Maxim. Hello. In this episode, we will take a look at the major trends and events in and around Ukraine in 2021. So, Maxim, what were the main developments that took place throughout the entire year, in, in your opinion? Well, first of all, we'll need to dwell on the escalation, on its two iterations in spring and now, which is ongoing now. We'll talk about the halfway of Zelensky's tenure as Ukraine's president. Uh, we also will talk about the 30th anniversary of uh, Ukraine's independence and what that means, where we have come f- to so far. Uh, we will talk about the pandemic, about Ukraine's peculiarities in this sense, about the anti-vaccination sentiments that are present in Ukraine and how that reflects on the tendencies. We will speak about the processes in uh, Ukraine's cabinet, resignation of Avakov, uh, about the resignation of uh, Mr. Azumkov, the chairman of Verkhovna uh, Rada. We cannot but speak on the deal oligarchization processes, about the uh, sanctions against pro-Russian oligarch Medvedchuk, about the bill that has been adopted, about Zelensky's war with Akhmetov that is nascent this this recent months, and we'll also uh, talk about more uh, the, of the, about the external situation uh, around Ukraine, about Ukraine's movement to NATO and where we stand in that sense. Yeah, indeed. The, the year is very turbulent and other countries, uh, when, we, when they are looking at Ukraine, for example, other countries that suffer from the pandemics or from the anti-vaccination mood or from changes in their governments, when they look at Ukraine, they, they might be shocked because... Okay, we have we have the pandemics as other countries. We have anti-vaccination movements much higher than in mm-hmm. in many other European countries. But we have the external threat. We have ongoing war, and this year was were very kind of nervous. We talked a lot uh, talked a lot about it in our podcast, and uh, the uh, massive buildup of Russian troops since spring. So the world has started talking about it massively in November, December, but we are talking about this massive build-up since at least March, April. We will talk about this in detail. And also, on top of this, these internal turbulences, which we will discuss it, which, I mean, create a very unstable situation inside Ukraine. So Zelensky seem, seems to be waging a war against everybody else in Ukrainian politics. And this is, we don't know whether he's, this is his conscious choice or he's manipulated by some other people, uh, but this is the reality. So let's let's talk and let, let's move on so the the first is of course the risk of uh, full scale military aggression we are recording this podcast on the 20 or oh, 31st of december and uh, last night there were negotiations between putin and biden by by phone we have the reports uh, uh, from the uh, from the offices of for example of biden administration of course uh, everything is more or less hidden uh, so the Americans has warned Russians that if the escalation continue, if there is a, a military escalation, so the, there will be uh, harsh, uh, harsh economic sanctions. But what is your vision of this, of this escalation of this military buildup, and how Ukrainian society sees it? Well, first of all, uh, I 
think it should be emphasized that back in the day when it was in spring, the escalation started in spring, uh, back in the day it was, I think, perceived as a test that Putin wanted to impose on Biden, on his new administration. So it felt like Putin was trying to fill a void and to test the West. Nowadays, uh, the thing is a bit. Uh, the things are a bit different. I think the things are more about the clash between Putin and the West, the direct confrontation. Because this last past weeks, uh, several weeks have been filled with, uh, well, almost threats on the part of Russia, and the rhetoric that well, we're going to react if NATO gets any closer to us. We're going, uh, you know, oh, they essentially are almost promising to you know to invade ukraine so um that's a very important a very important difference to to know uh, and to have a part in this sense and also what ukraine uh, needs to understand is also um that the extent of things that the west is ready to do for ukraine in this situation is quite ambiguous now i mean like does nato have uh, enough incentives to you know to go for a full-fledged war with Russia or is Biden ready for that so we do not the answer really is no the yes, answer is no understand. so the, the question is to which extent uh, the the sanctions regime for example which is uh, which is promised by mm-hmm. the western partners w- whether they will be applied and whether they will be applied after the aggression if uh, in the case of aggression or before because what we have seen uh, from the reports from this meeting yesterday or the default negotiations is that Putin is threatening if there are sanctions that there will be relations between the United States and, and Russia will be cut. Well, they're, they're not really very good right now, but there is a threat that they will be cut, right? And, uh, and it's interesting that um, the visions of this situation is different. Uh, from the United States, for example, we, we see the signals from the United States, from NATO, that the, the threat is very real. And it's very strange that Ukrainian administration is ca- coming down. Maybe uh, we, we have seen the yesterday's uh, statement by Mr. Danilov, who is the Secretary of the National Security and Defense Council, who said, well, his message was, you can celebrate calmly it's, it's you can celebrate okay. you can celebrate new year new year you have you, you can have your new year parties everything will be fine etc so either it is an attempt to calm down the mood the panicking mood which can exist in ukrainian society or it's a statement that basically we know the threat we are aware of the threat and current state of affairs does not allow us to think that there will be a full scale land invasion well, but at the same time, either way, I think what we need to remember is that a couple of months back, there was a similar situation when the, this iteration of the build-up was only starting. Uh, our Western partners were telling us, like, guys, there is an unprecedented amassing of forces here at your border. And Mr. Danilov and other authorities said essentially the same, that it's not, uh, we have not registered that much of a movement, of a new movement along the border. So essentially Ukrainian authorities were more uh, were calmer in this respect, but later on they needed to admit that the Western partners were right. So is it something that we're going to have uh, once again, that now Mr. Danilov is saying that everything is calmer than, you know, than we're being told, but then he's going to come forward and again admit that, yes, the situation is graver than we're talking about. So we need to n- not to be very relaxed 
by the words that may be coming from Ukraine. Yeah, this relaxed mood, um, uh, it, it worries me a lot, um, especially in the situation, for example, that in 2021, we had huge problems with, uh, with the defense sector, with the defense sector supplies. And the, the big discussion in, in Ukraine is the discussion of the so-called Državne uh, Oborone Zamovlenia, the DOS, the, the state um, procurement. Say, procurement or for the defense sector. So it was hugely delayed for half a year. That means that basically the enterprises, the companies that are repairing, you know, uh, tanks or some vehicles or producing them, they couldn't start doing that in the beginning of the year because they didn't have the procurement from the state and it started only after the half of the year. So problems with that, problems in the defense ministry, therefore Ukraine has a, a new defense minister, etc. So I would not be that relaxed, but it's interesting how indeed the the public estimations of the threat from the United States and NATO on the one side and from Ukraine on the other side are different. Uh, for our listeners who want to learn more about the whole story about military escalation, let me remind that we have uh, recently, in, the, in December, we had three thematic podcasts about that. We have talked with Peter Dickinson from Atlantic Council, with Alexander Sushko from the International Renaissance Foundation, and with James Sher, a famous uh, foreign policy expert um, from the Chatham House and Estonian um, Institute of, for Security Studies. So you ha- you can have a picture out of that. And what these experts are saying, for example, James Sher, is that, look, uh, from the bluff and full-scale land military invasion, there are lots of other options in this spectrum. For example, there can be a strike on key military infrastructure that, can take a few days and that's it. So if when Ukraine is saying, when when Danilov is saying, look, they're not that much ready, the Russians are not that much ready for a full-scale land military inv- invasion, other options can also Maybe be present. Maybe that's not what's needed for Russia. Yes. Other options are also, are, are also present. So uh, let's move forward. And um, of course, the global situation, the global surrounding of this is kind of a Russian ultimatums that they have they they need to have a guarantee that NATO does not move further to the east and they put quite high uh, quite high demands and there are lots of talk about the willingness to establish a new Yalta uh, by by Putin what do you think about it well i think that first of all uh, this may be an attempt for russia and for putin himself to um well, to gain a higher seat on the international agenda. Maybe this is how Putin is trying, you know, to uh, bring Russia to an upper league. And, of course, it's quite a different question whether Russia has resources to do that. But maybe that's why Russia uh, has to intimidate, because it has nothing to offer when it comes to, you know, to anything progressive. So, yes, uh, I think uh, that, uh, first of all, this is the role that Putin wants to uh, Russia to have and then there is the security reasons uh, because uh, well NATO is getting closer to Ukraine to Russia if Ukraine gets uh, closer to NATO so yes that that would be I understand how that would be perceived in Russia but an important thing that I have uh, noticed in the recent days is that Russia Russian authorities almost seem to be preparing the Russian public 
to the fact that the war is inevitable. There are different talk shows where even Ukrainian MPs take place, take, uh, well, participate. They uh, are talking about, almost about Ukraine's plan- plans to invade Russia, which is nonsense, uh, about NATO's plans to invade Russia, uh, about uh, the threats uh, that are coming from the West. So it's almost... It it looks almost like Russian authorities are preparing the population that guys will have no other choice but to go belligerent. And I think that is quite an indicative step that we cannot ignore. Yes, we analyze Russian Russian media or so-called media a lot at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. What we see, for example, is that the narrative that there is aggressive Ukraine willing to take the militarily the occupied territories back is very present. And uh, we don't see this mood in Ukraine. We don't see any reasonable discussion of that. Even even the fierce, you know, nationalists are not not talking about this because, well, they understand all the risks, and Ukrainians only understand all the risks which can uh, which can follow. But this discourse is highly present on Russian television. Uh, another point is that. Uh, uh, the, the situation when Russians were distributing Russian passports on the occupied territories creates right now a very casus belli for them because they're openly saying that, look, on this particular, there was a situation about uh, about one particular village in the gray zone between these two sides on, on the demarcation line. And uh, they were saying, look, there are 30 Russian citizens who are willing, who are living in this particular village, and they voted for Russian state Duma elections. And therefore, if one of them suffers, that the Russians will consider it as an attack on 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 their citizens. So, so this discourse is really present, and I wonder if you notice this famous, well, or notorious article by Vladislav Surkov, I think in November, who was saying, Surkov, uh, a recent key figure in all the situation of the occupation of Donbass, and uh, he now uh, is not in the Putin administration, so he was replaced by another person, by Mr. Kozak. But, uh, I mean, he's more free in expressing his thoughts, and uh, one of the thought, this philosophical thought, typical for Surkov, was to say that in order to keep order inside Russia. Russia should export chaos, chaos outside. And therefore it should proceed with its, you know, external external uh, occupations, external expansion, etc. Another calculation I think is that Russia is seeing that the West is pulling back from the territories that were countries that were under Soviet control during the Cold War and then moved to kind of a more Western control after that. Even to NATO, some of them. What I mean is Afghanistan, what I mean is Syria, what I mean is Iraq, and of course uh, the Eastern Europe. And it seems that Russians are feeling that the West is receding, that there is this introvertious kind of, that the Western countries are becoming more and more introverts. So this Surkov is saying, look, uh, our modus operandi is expansion and... um, the Western world seems to be, you know, receding and and looking more and more inside itself. And Russians are feeling that. So basically there is a void to be filled and Russia sees that as an opportunity. And again, when you spoke about uh, expanding chaos as as an instrument, you know, to keep grips on the domestic situation, it's really 
again, about the optics for domestic population to present uh, to the population that there are threats and there are victories against the backdrop of those threats. So uh, allegedly showing the population that, look, like we are victorious, even though the threats are grave, like, look, we, we are successful. So, you know, don't complain about how you're living. So... That's, I can understand how that uh, thinking works in, in Russia. But coming back to this message to the <clears throat> internal Russian citizens, there was a clear message of Mr. Putin, I think it was some 10 days ago, when he was talking about... He was quite often, publicly speaking recently, right, in, in December. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was saying, he was talking with Sakurov, the Russian movie director, a famous movie director, who... Uh, attempts to challenge Putin several times already in history, publicly. Putin doesn't like it, but... And he was saying that, look, NATO wants to turn Russia into a Moscovy, right? Into And, and here we, we, we see all this, you know, passion of Putin for history and all, all, all this stuff. So for to Moscow, to kind of a Moscow, maybe St. Petersburg, some other oblasts, so to turn Russia into a nation-state rather than the empire... And he sees it as a kind of a as a as a what NATO thinks about. I don't think that NATO is really thinking about no about this. Uh, and we we all remember how reluctant even the Western powers were when Ukrainians were willing to go from the Soviet Union. We we, we remember how uh, George Bush, the the senior, came to you came to Kiev in 1991. So. 30 years ago, mm-hmm. right, in early August, to say, to come down Ukrainians and to persuade us not to leave the Soviet Union. So this is how publicly the collective West is, is thinking. They're afraid of Russia being split up. But the, but the narrative inside Russia is absolutely different. Well, it's again, it's about the imperialistic vision that Putin is trying to defend because he understands that that's key to the uh, geopolitical nature of Russia and that Russia can only be kept uh, intact in its borders if that myth, uh, if that vision is is uh, maintained. So again, I understand why he needs that from the standpoint of uh, his uh, national interests. But at the same time, I mean, uh, there is, there are so many contradictions in what they put into those myths. For instance, during the recent press conference, uh, Putin said basically that Ukraine was uh, established essentially by Lenin in 20s or something. But at the same time, it makes one wonder, like, wait, what happened to the myth about Ukraine being created by the Austrian, uh, you know, military stuff? that was previously circulating in the political circles of Russia. Well, there is a there is kind of a logical thing around it. They, they would say that Austrians, uh, Austro-Hungary, Habsburg Empire, invaded Ukrainians to counteract, you know, Polish minority. And therefore, afterwards, this idea of Ukraine raised in the 19th century, and then Lenin responded to this idea. We responded a lot at Ukraine World to this mythology. Uh, let me refer you to our book, Revision of History, Russian Historical Propaganda and Ukraine, which you can download uh, on our website, ukraineworld.org, uh, in the section books. So we, we will not go in detail into this, but let me also remind our listeners that we have 
re- regularly we are regularly doing podcasts about Ukrainian history. We have a very interesting talk with Serhii Plohi from Harvard University, very interesting talk with Catherine Younger from the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, and uh, a, a most recent talk with Rory Thinen from Cambridge about Crimea. So a lot of interesting stuff to listen. But let's go further and um, uh, a little uh, talk about a little bit uh, more maybe positive for Ukraine note but not well we cannot talk about really positive because we're talking about Afghanistan and all this you know tragic situation of American troops going from Afghanistan and we see in in Russian propaganda maybe this is the last time we mention it in our podcast how this parallel between Afghanistan and Ukraine is made so the west pulled from Afghanistan and 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 left Afghanistan it will leave Ukraine in the same in the same way but Ukraine played an important role in evacuating different citizens from Afghanistan and uh, Ukrainians Ukrainian uh, soldiers Ukrainian uh, special forces uh, risked their life uh, lives and but you know putting people on boards of Ukrainian planes and that was quite a a positive thing an important thing both inside and outside Ukraine right yes because uh, the fact that Ukrainian uh Well, military staff were taken back not only Ukrainian citizens but also citizens of other countries uh, neighboring countries and not only neighbor, neighboring countries uh, I think this is a very good uh, well public diplomacy move so to say uh, proposing the vision of Ukraine as a country that can also help but on not only request for help even if in such small details but crucial for the lives of nationals of different countries I think that's a very um you know positive image move for ukraine and uh, you know it it really indeed is i'm very happy that uh, these things have been happening more frequently in 2021 because afghanistan indeed was not the only um the only time when ukraine helped somebody in, in uh, you know when there was this migration crisis with between belarus and poland and lithuania ukraine also helped uh, lithuania with you know uh, instruments to, to to you know to uh to support the instruments on the border you know to prevent this illegal migration so i think that uh, yes 2021 was visibly more uh, you know of a success in that sense for ukraine yeah it's very important that ukraine develops its own agency and we see we see moves in this direction we see uh, foreign policy moves like creation of the uh, lublin triangle or association trio lublin triangle is ukraine poland lithuania association trio ukraine moldova georgia meaning the, these countries have association agreements with the eu so it's it's indeed important uh, let's now come to the internal agenda mm-hmm. we've talked for 20 minutes about external agenda and of course this is very important but let's look at how ukrainian politics and society have been developing in 2021 uh, so zelensky rating zelensky popularity what what can we say about it the recent figures by uh, by rating group one of the most uh, reputable ukrainian sociological companies says that if the elections are right now so among all those who who have uh, taken the decision for whom they will vote Volodymyr Zelensky will take 24% uh, Mr Poroshenko his main rival in 2019 and the previous president has 13% 9% by Timoshenko 9% by Mr Boyko and 7% by Mr Murayev so for you to understand Boyko and Murayev are two pro-Russian candidates 
uh, but they're split, you know, there is no no pro-Russian, pro-Russian only party. And it's interesting that, well, there are rumors that Muraev is funded mostly by Akhmetov. We will talk about this later. But uh, what is interesting about that is that Zelensky rating is almost the same as in early 2021. It was going down closer to summer. It was going up right now. So we see quite fluctuating popularity. But uh, this is half of his term. And we don't know what will happen next. Because Zelensky doesn't, doesn't seem to have a core electorate, core citizens who will vote for them. For example, Poroshenko clearly has kind of a core electorate, people with this patriotic and pro-Western yes. uh, moods. Timoshenko has also the core uh, core voters, mostly people are th- who are thinking about their material well-being and therefore Timoshenko uh, is playing on these very material things like tariffs, etc. Boyko and Moraev are obviously playing with this pro-Russian or pro-Kremlin or West skeptic citizens. So how you how you estimate all that? Well, there are several things to, to mention. Uh, first of all, from what I gather from recent polls, is that uh, even though the Zelensky popularity uh, is uh, dropping, uh, he still is the most favorable candidate and the most favorable anti-candidate at the same time uh, for the next election if it were to happen these days. Uh, this is... Uh, Just to give you a figure that 30%, according to another poll by Kmis Kiev, International Institute of Sociology, 30% say they will never vote for Zelensky, mm-hmm. and 29% say they will never vote for Poroshenko. Interestingly, Kiev mayor and famous boxer uh, Vitaly Klitschko has only 12% of this anti-rating, which raises questions, maybe he will be one of the new politicians on the next elections. But sorry, I interrupted Yes, so and uh, another thing is that um, that I noticed is that towards the midterm, Zelensky is becoming quite a regular Ukrainian politician. And I'm trying to, I'm going to try to explain what I mean. Zelensky started off with uh, a much better profile than most of the candidates, both, both uh, during this election, the last election, and during previous elections. So he had uh, a, a better start. He was a new figure, he was a very promising figure, uh, he had uh, not not that standard thinking, he had he was more creative and so on. Towards his uh, towards the middle of his uh, tenure, uh, his team has become more fractured. He has uh, lost uh, much of the you know of the creative drive because there are you know things about the escalation that needs to be need to be dealt with. So um, what I say is that he is now embroiled in those political games that have been previously characteristic of every other president's tenure. And the effectiveness of his political tenure, of the political decisions that can be made, are now more or less, um, well, they are more or less the same than during the previous presidencies. So the, the effectiveness of the presidency, the amount of the solutions that are being presented in the public sphere, social, economic ones. Well, we, we hear about the creative ideas that the team of Zelensky has, but the extent to which they may be implemented now that Zelensky does not uh, ha- does not longer have this united of a team that he used to have. So, you know, this is kind of a slowdown that I think, uh, well, 
will carry on for some time, maybe to the end of his tenure. Exactly. Um, some analysts are saying that, look, this is kind of a more, he's quite a big rating despite everything. And uh, I don't think any Ukrainian president would have 24% after the two and and half years of his presidency, right? So Ukrainians are very mistrustful to their presidents. Ukrainians are very anarchic politically. Ukrainians don't trust the government. Ukrainians don't identify them with the governments. There are, you know, typical stories. And when, when Zelensky was winning on the election, you know, with 70-something percent in, in 2000, uh, 2019, Many people, including myself, were saying, were warning, like, hold on, let's let's have a look what will happen in two years. And in two years, I would say that, well, he he still has this popularity, but it's fluctuating. And, um, and we see that, okay, people who are ready to vote for him, are, there is a quite a big number. But at the same time, recent polls say that Ukrainians name Zelensky as the biggest disappointment of the year. My question to my fellow citizens is, is the following. Why uh, were you so enchanted about him so that you're so disenchanted about him right now? Was it worth it to be so to believe in, you know, in, in the magic pills, in the magic stories that he was presenting in order to be disappointed? Of course, he would not. It was obvious that he would not deliver what he promised, you know, uh, at, at least in, at some point. And, and the war, you know, put all the corrupt people in the, in the, in the jails, etc., etc. So this is a big question to Ukrainian society, who, which is, in my estimation, I would say that it, um, it supplies so much trust, maybe too much trust, too much faith in some politicians, so that in order after that to be disappointed and to take this loan of trusts and put it to somebody else. So this is the reality in which uh, Ukrainian politicians have to have to navigate all the time. Interestingly, when we're talking about his party, so according to different estimations, some estimations are saying that Sluha Narod, the servant of the people, is, is still way ahead of the uh, competitors. But, um, uh, for example, others, uh, others polls are saying that European Solidarity, Poroshenko bloc, is a hand of the Sluha Narodo, which, which, you know, is a big question for Zelensky. But it's interesting that pro-Russian party opposition platform is not even third, but fourth. So it also creates the impression that we talked uh, uh, several episodes before, I think, that Russians are not having really a political party to be, uh, to be um, kind of a, to be the basis for their action, any possible action in Ukraine, and therefore they can be more interested in destabilizing, in in fracturing Ukrainian politics, in creating this war of all against all in Ukrainian politics, and that leads us to the next issue: is that. Zelensky is playing this game. He's playing this game of not consolidating, but rather polarizing Ukrainian society. And he's waging war against three powerful persons and powerful forces. First is against uh, Mr. Medvedchuk, who is the key pro-Russian politician in Ukraine. And I would personally support this war. I think it's it's important that uh, clear pro-Kremlin agents are not made legal in Ukraine. And that's very good that Zelensky has started that. 
let me remind that he launched, uh, well, Zelensky and the National Security and Defense Council launched sanctions against Medvedchuk-linked TV channels in February and then against Medvedchuk himself in May. But also there is a war with Poroshenko, his predecessor, and the war with Akhmetov, the richest Ukrainian oligarch. So let's talk about these two issues mm-hmm. um, a little bit in detail, because recently we have the new developments around Poroshenko. What were they? Yes, so basically uh, Zelensky's office and his administration are trying to uh, pursue the narrative that Poroshenko committed, uh, you know, treason. The, the state treason uh, during his tenure by, you know, different uh, movements around the import of coal from the non-controlled territories and how legal that was or how illegal that was. So, but either way, um, the optics is not very good for uh, for Mr. Zelensky because even, even Ukraine's Western partners have already uh, s- made some statements. They were quite reserved, quite diplomatic, but quite clear that guys, I mean, like, of course, you have the the power to prosecute whoever you deem necessary to, but be aware that this is your political opponents you're talking about, and there is a reason why you're starting talking uh, about this right now and not earlier. So maybe uh, you know you need to be careful in that respect. And I totally agree. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know all the details of how reasonable that persecution is. But uh, the clear thing here is that um, the law enforcement agencies and the office of the president need to have this case rock solid in order for nobody to have any uh, doubts about this being a political uh, thing. Because otherwise, uh, what what sense... Uh, I mean, like, Zelensky has already... Um, presented himself as a new face with new values. So, but if this indeed is a political case, so what would be the difference between him and his predecessors? Yeah, and what is the difference between him and Yanukovych, who put Timoshenko in jail, right? And the question is also why it's it's about state treason. It seems that uh, this concept, uh, Medvedchuk is also accused of state treason. You know, this concept of, is kind of a, a magical tool for Zelensky and for uh, National Security and Defense Council or for a general prosecutor, you know, to to say that they are, these are bad, bad people. And we cannot avoid the impression that Either it is the decision of Zelensky and his entourage and so much hatred about Poroshenko, which I frankly don't understand the reason for, or there is a kind of a very, I would say, very short-sighted calculation because indeed they are saying themselves, Mr. Danilov is saying himself that, look, what is more important is not even external aggression but Russian actions inside Ukraine polarization of the society, fracturing of the society. Okay, if you understand that, <laughs> that why you why you go into this direction? Because, of course, if Poroshenko is put into jail, that can... Uh, he has lots of supporters in Ukraine, in Kyiv, for example. We have seen already this. And this can potentially provoke massive disorder, massive, you know, protests. And you have foreign troops on your border, you know, which can which can act anytime. And as we have seen in 2014, the Russia attacks when there is a chaos, when there is a void in Kiev. Vulnerability. Uh, yes. Yeah, power void. 
uh, at that time when when it understand that the opponent cannot oppose you and cannot fight against you another issue is mr ahmedov and uh, we have discussed it in our one of our previous episodes we have seen how zelensky openly said that well ahmedov can be used or abused in some schemes schemes to make coup d'etat we were very skeptical with you about this because we know the story of mr ahmedov who comes from the from the 90s from donbas and uh, he was a person who was okay with all the presidents yes uh, with kuchma with yushchenko with yanukovych with with poroshenko etc he's a person who always puts acts into different bas- baskets who always inve- invest into different political projects for example he can invest in very patriotic political projects and in very pro kremlin political projects so he's not a person who would you know seek power through coup d'etat he's rather a a eminence gris you know in ruling many things in this country and the question is okay you should somehow limit these people because they're very uh, very rich people having power but you should do that carefully in order not to produce what historically is called fronde the <laughs> you yes. know the the war of barons against the king what do you think well of course uh, when it comes to zelensky's interests in uh, waging a war against akhmedov i think his motives are quite another pair of shoes than in case of um, of Mr. Poroshenko. First of all, because of the sheer size of uh, of the personality of Akhmedov and his, you know, uh his economic well-being, uh in virtue of that he's exhibit A when it comes to Zelensky's war against oligarchs per se, you know, on the global scale. That's first of all. Second of all, as you have uh, briefly mentioned, uh, indeed uh, Akhmedov is uh, Uh, he, he may be puppeteering Ukrainian, and he indeed is Ukrainian politics, which is no news. But when it comes to the former members of uh, Zelensky's team, like, for instance, the possible support by Mr. Ahmedov of, for instance, Mr. Asmukov, the former chairman of the Verkhovna Rada. So maybe Zelensky is perceiving that as a potential threat at the forthcoming elections, both uh, presidential and parliamentary. And he is trying to uh, prevent that. And of course, because ironically, I don't think that um, the official reason for which Ahmedov is being pressed, the alleged affili- affiliation with Russia, you know, and the coup d'etat uh, story, I don't think it really holds up that that well. I mean, of course, Ahmedov is a good businessman. He knows to negotiate with many people if if that's in the interests of his business. But he has I have a feeling that he has always known where his true affiliation is in ta- in terms of uh, nation because he's not interested in the war coming deeper in Ukraine because that will tarnish his business. You know, so ultimately I don't think he would risk those big of the things. So I think that this story about the coup d'etat does not really hold up, but the other risks for the political future of Zelensky and for the for the image of of that oligarchization project you know let's summarize it as that those are some very important things for president zelensky yeah and to sum up we we see the situation when having troops on the border and having the risk of a full scale military invasion having troubles in the energy sphere and you know 
Ukraine lacks electricity, for example, lacks heating, and we 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 see the situation when there are, you know, uh, some kind of cut cuts off being made. In this situation, you know, in this in how to say it, in place of consolidating the political spectrum, in, in, in instead of consolidating it, instead of avoiding some new conflicts, Zelensky is proceeding with new and new conflicts with his with his former allies, for example, like Razumkov or mm-hmm. Avakov, with uh, his uh, predecessors like Poroshenko, with powerful figures. And the question which I raise is why, either either the, there is a, this willingness to for redistribution of resources, or there is emotional actions, or there is stupidity, or there is something, some other motivations which we don't know. Because logically, rationally, if you have, you know, a foreign enemy on the border, you would you would not be really interested in in this kind of political games inside your country. Let's talk about we have been talking for 40 minutes and let's maybe sum up and talk a little bit about how Ukrainians see the events, what what public opinion uh, reports, what public opinion polls are telling us. And one of these uh, is uh, made by rating group which asked Ukrainians what were the major events in 2021. And not surprisingly for me, Ukrainians are living in a kind of a kind of a fairy tale you know and they're they're thinking in terms of these very publicly known publicly visible events and for ukrainians it's sports primarily so the first event is the victory of ukrainian boxer mr usik this is the top event for ukrainian 2021 the second of all is the success of uh, ukrainian uh, sportsmen in the paralympics games and the third event, it's not sports, it's so-called big construction. So the roads really are being built. This is probably the most visible part of, Ukra- of Zelensky administration. We really see how the, how the country is changing. You can really yes. travel through the, through the country uh, and uh, not being stuck in, you know, roads with, with lots of holes, etc. Ukraine is turning really into a country where you can travel between cities and by car, by bus, by motorbike, and that's fantastic. The uh, and the next thing is the digital transformation, and it's indeed what we have seen. Everybody, almost everybody, has this uh, DIA application where you have your passport, where you have your vaccination certificate, where you have your driving license, everything else. So it's very comfortable. So Ukraine, Ukraine is really among those countries who are very, you know, quick in this digital transformation. And football, at which we talked about in, uh, I think it's summer, when Ukrainian football team was quite successful because it reached uh, reached quarterfinals. So 35% think that the, the, the victory of Alexander Usyk was the biggest event. How do you estimate this? Why Ukrainians are so, so you know, proud of their sportsmen? Well, I think that, first of all, we care very much about the visions of ourselves in the international arena, partly because maybe there is, you know, not maybe a complex, but something like that, that we have always been known as somewhere near Russia or somewhere in Russia. So we are happy that there are, you know, prominent figures and prominent developments that present us to the world as, you know, as a successful and more importantly, separate entity. So that's that would be the first. The second reason, I think, is that um, Ukrainians must be uh, quite... um, 
wary of the war that has been ongoing for eight years and which is why they're trying you know to uh, talk about these more positive things and i would not necessarily say that this is a very positive development because here we can um well quite easily forget that there is a war in the east and you know live our usual lives and well in terms of the public mobilization that may not be the the most um well useful thing in in terms of the aggression so but uh, those are the two things that i think play the major role here and it's important when when asked about reforms ukrainians are noticing those reforms which are visible which are yes. touchable which which you, you you can see the road you can see this application dia on your smartphone and it's probably a hint to all our you know presidents prime ministers etc if you want to be appreciated in this nation or maybe any other nation do things that are visible not only you know Okay, uh, adopting laws, adopting some, you know, legislative things is very important long in the long term, but in order to talk to your citizens, citizens unfortunately or fortunately are not really specialists in everything, so they mm-hmm. can they should see things. About emotions, let's talk about emotions and here the picture is not very good. Uh, 14% of Ukrainians got more confidence in the future and 53% got worse confidence in the future this year. Unfortunately, I was always thinking about Ukrainians as a kind of a future-oriented nation, but we see that this future-orientalism is mostly still a matter of a, of a minority. Forty percent, nine percent has has got nine percent better economic situation. Fifty percent think that they have got worse economic situation. But it's interesting some other fi- uh, uh, some other figures that. Only 10% think that the year is not successful at all. Well, 50% think that the economic situation has worsened, but only 10% think that the year is not successful at all. One third believes that it is successful, and half of the citizens, well, are thinking so-so. It was partly successful, partly not. But I think emotionally, this so-so is one of the biggest Ukrainian emotions. Yeah. Know? Yes. Yeah. Are you happy? Yeah. Well... Yeah, maybe I'm happy. So Ukrainians will not uh, is not a nation who would say citizens of which who would say I'm extremely happy. I'm so happy that is is so fantastic. But compare this. So people estimate the economic situation as much as uh, half of the citizens thinking that it got much wo- much worse. But but only ten percent think that the year is not successful. Well, it's interesting kind of a contradiction, which is yes. in minds of our of our co co citizens. Well, first of all, uh, when you spoke about the fact that the year was, uh, why Ukrainians may have been discounted with the year and with you know the level of success we reached, is that uh, we have seen the overlapping of two major developments of the ongoing war, which we have touched upon in detail, and of the pandemic. But at the same time. Uh, the pandemic we either got used to the pandemic already or are moving towards a, a lighter stage of it because you know more people are getting vaccinated which in its own sense is a very ambivalent thing that is going on in Ukraine but still more people are, are going to vaccinate and uh, people are have got used to the pandemic and you know restrictions are smaller like I think yesterday it was told by the authorities that there would be no total no more total lockdowns in Ukraine Maybe that's a very bold statement to, to be made because who knows, but uh, still, you know, that gives some optimism. So maybe that's, you know, 
um, that's why we perceive the situation as so-so. It's it's always about like, yes, there are these and those problems, but we know how to you know how to move forward, how to you know. And it's interesting that uh, among the major events, for example, okay, what the, the things that we have been discussing here on our podcast is these anti-oligarchic laws, anti-Medvedchuk actions, etc. 13-14% considered it as a major event. That means that Usyk, uh, for example, victory is much more important for Ukrainians than these political developments. I think we are still talking about, always talking about maybe one-fifth, maybe one-seventh of the citizens who are really following following these events. And um, last but not least, also about vaccination, um, uh, according to rating group, 43% of Ukrainians don't want to vaccinate. Is it good or bad? Well, compared to July, in July we had 53. <laughs> so <Yes>. compared <laughs> to July, that's a good tempo. That is that is that is a progress. But indeed with vaccination we we see, I mean, why there is such a high mood, such a high resistance to vaccination interestingly because Ukrainians are getting less and less patriarchic. Uh, less less and less hierarchic society they mistrust the government they mistrust the international organizations they they really care about their own freedom the freedom of their bodies one of the key argument is that this is my body why should i put the vaccine into my body uh, some other arguments that look there is collective responsibility etc etc doesn't really work so Ukrainians are increasingly atomistic, individualistic. I don't know whether it's good or bad. It's another extreme, I would say, compared to the Soviet Soviet period in which there was high collectivism. Now we have this high individualism. At some moments of history, like Maidan on social mobilization during the, um, the first years of the war, that was a positive impact. But whether the society can can really survive in this highly individualistic and highly mistrustful mood? That's a big question. On the other hand, we can say that probably it's a leitmotif of Ukrainian history to be mistrustful to big powers. Yeah, that's true. And uh, you said that you didn't know whether it was a good or bad development that people were growing this individualistic. But I think that in terms of... Um, of the vaccination and more broadly of uh, of the pandemic, I think that's quite a bad development. Well, because... Um, we're talking not about the responsibility for oneself only, but also for the others. And at the end of the day, we're not talking only about health, that maybe I, if I'm not vaccinated, I mean, I'm vaccinated, but if I were not, I like would be able to uh, infect somebody and that somebody could die because maybe he would be more susceptible to stronger symptoms. So we're talking not about only the personal responsibility for oneself. That's one. And the second, uh, the slower we vaccinate in general as a country, which is now for uh, like thirty something percent, I think. Um, the less would be the tempo of the economic recovery. The less would be the tempo of the recovery of um, of the well reopening of the borders. You know of this um, dynamics, economic dynamics that needs to uh, to come back in order, you know, to save the economy, because the plunges that we've seen not only in Ukraine but you know across the world in the terms of the GDP shortages, when compared to, for instance, 2019, well, we understand that 
the quicker we get back, the better. But in Ukraine, we have a situation when less vaccination rates may be hampering that. So everybody needs to understand the level of responsibilities and the extent of responsibilities that go further than a given individual's body. Yeah, I fully agree with you. And the, the problem is when the, this level of thinking will be at such level when people... Well, it's good that people are caring about themselves. It, it's good that people are caring about their bodies. It's good that people are defining their lives with the vocabulary of freedom. Well, this is my body. I'm free to do that, uh, whatever, whatever I can. The problem is that this is negative freedom as philosophers are saying this is a freedom from this is not a freedom to do something to do something responsibly collectively and of course this is a question of uh, you know economic development cultural development educational development i think we we can see from these figures which are not very encouraging i would say frankly and uh, we are we are making this podcast not to be very encouraging or discouraging but discouraging but to to seek for for some for some truth yeah but i think that well one of the takeaways is that we can of course ukraine is a very interesting country very dynamic country with lots of you know interesting dynamic innovative people many of them are doing things from the scratch or trying to build new institutions from the scratch or reform the old ones and it's in and, and, and it's very difficult but we're still talking about 10-15% of the population of the citizens and there is a huge mass of people who are th- who are saying that the economic situation is getting worse they're not successful in life and these people will be anti-vaccinators these people will be uh thinking in terms of conspiratorial uh, th- theories these people will be maybe fragile or vulnerable to pro kremlin or anti western propaganda etc and we should be aware of that so this was this year the i would say as as we began very turbulent year mm-hmm. right maxine yes. so um maybe we are expecting even more turbulent year next year because the uh, military threat is still there and uh, Ukrainian society still have very lots of vulnerabilities lots of positive things of social mobilization etc but lots of internal vulner- vulnerabilities to which we have to which we have to address this was a podcast explaining ukraine by ukraineworld.org website in english about ukraine my name is Volodymyr Yermolenko i'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org and i was joined by my colleague analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine Maxim Panchenko thanks so much Maxim for Likewise. joining this thank podcast. you very much uh, let me remind that uh, Ukraine World uh, expanding Ukraine podcast by Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud Google Podcast Apple Podcast follow Ukraine World uh, on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to our web uh, website at ukraineworld.org and stay with us. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.